If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be going on, this is the final message in the series on the Ten Commandments, really about relationships. We talked about Jesus' words, um, classifying them in two categories, loving God and loving people. And that's really what this whole thing is about. It's about relationships. This is about God giving us a command. Yes, we call them the Ten Commandments because they are commandments, but it's like a father telling his child not to touch the hot stove because the, the father knows what's best for the child. So God is giving us this Ten Commandments in love. The Ten Commandments are about us living a good life and prospering and for a civil society. They are, they are good for us. And so... Uh, when we come to this 10th one, it kind of connects with all of the others. And I want to point out the reasons why. So Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, the Bible says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, the word covet is, is a very powerful word, and we find it really amplified in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conduct, conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you, he says. Isn't that good news? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And this reference comes, of course, from Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, um, God gives him instruction. And it says in verse 5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I, I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Uh, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. And this is great. A commission, really, that God is giving to Joshua. Moses is dead and gone, and Joshua is now the de facto leader, but he's one of the called. He's called to this place, and he's one of the ones that came out of the land, really, the spies. And he said, hey, we can do this thing. And so here he is, and, and God gives him this incredible commission, if you will. And he says to Joshua, hey, I was with Moses. I'm going to be with you. And the being with Moses was a big deal. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea, the leading of the children of Israel out of bondage, all the incredible things that God did in the wilderness. And now he's at a place where they're going to finally be going into the promised land. And God says, you know, just as I was with Moses and all the miracles and things that I did to provide for my people, I'm going to provide for you. God says to him, hey, be strong and courageous. Why? Why can you have this confidence? Because I got your back. I'm the one who's going to care for you. Now in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, we probably want to turn there because there's two places where we find the Ten Commandment list. One is in Exodus 20, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the word Deuteronomy means the law the second time or, or a second time around or the law given again. And so here we have it reiterated, Exodus meaning the Exodus, but the second time it's given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I guess Moses felt like we needed to hear it again, so he wrote it twice. And so here we have in 5 verse 21, you will not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now notice a different word here. It says in the beginning the same, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, but you shall not desire, he says. Do we have that verse? I think we do. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. 
Now, it, this word desire means to covet. The Bible really defines itself here, and we don't desire other people's stuff. He says other people's relationships, other people's family, other people's car, other people's motorcycle, other people's wife, other people's husband. This is so significant that it makes God's top 10 list. It's so powerful that God says, hey, this is so important. I want you to hear this. Everything else comes through this. If we think about coveting the desire that is there, it what springs into adultery. To covet, to have something is being very deceptive. It is lying. To, to covet is to enter into wrong relationships. It is to steal. It is to do all the thing, many of the other things that the Ten Commandments tells us not to do. So this desire is really what, what we want to address. Everyone else has this stuff. In other words, I'm coveting. I'm desiring what somebody else has. Coveting begins with comparison. You know, in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, not that we de desire to classify or compare ourselves with some of those. Do I have this? Covetous begins with comparison. Okay, it's in your outline. Um, or they that commend themselves with themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Now, this is powerful because Paul says, hey, when you compare yourselves by somebody else, it really has no value at all. It's not important. It's not significant. And what, what do we do? The greatest progenitor today for these things is, is social media, right? We see somebody on vacation on their Instabook chat. And we, we, because it's out there, it's on their Instabook chat and they're having this wonderful time or they're having this incredible thing. Something is happening in their life and, and there it is. I knew we had it. So uh, it, it, we, uh, see the comparison there? That was the picture that I came up with. She's got the lollipop. I was going to use it for an illustration, but I, you know, for some reason, it's my fault. So, but we see them in this world and in, in, in social media really has been a huge progenitor of these things. It's been a great thing because we look at our, our Facebook and we see all these incredible things that somebody else is doing, but we don't understand that that's just the very tip of the iceberg of their life. That's just a little part that's showing. You know what it's like to do that, don't you? In your home, you see all this stuff and you got your, your Insta chat open and you're looking at how wonderful they are and you're doing laundry. It's, it's like, oh, man, my life could be so much better. And so we began to say, well, I wish I was like them. But, you know, desire is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Desire gone wrong is coveting. If you go to someone's house and they painted an accent wall in their living room and you come away with your spouse or whatever, you're sitting there driving home in the car, say, wow, did you see what they did there in their house? On that, that is a great idea. That's not coveting. That's a desire that says, I think we should do something similar. Or you go to the, somebody else's house and they have a henway or a thingamajiggy and you go, wow, that is a cool thing that, that they have, you know, and, and we should probably do that. Or, or their family dynamic was pretty cool this way. Let's, let's put some new family traditions in our lives that, that kind of mimic that, that do good things. And we could come away with being encouraged. So the desire for a good and for change is good. But Jesus is talking, or God is talking about here specifically, and Paul is as well, that, that there's a wrong part of that desire and it's not good. When I have to have their henway, when I have to have their thingamajiggy, coveting is a desire to actually have what someone else has. Their money is, the Bible says, or their spouse, their house, 
their servants, whatever that it is. It's, it's not coveting to look at someone's family and say, hey, I, I you know, wish we had that kind of relationship. Let's nurture that or have the quality about this or that. That's an observation that brings good things. So good desire is good, but then there's bad desire. Now, contentment is absolutely opposite of coveting. In contentment, there's some things here, some Bible uh, lesson, I guess, the Sunday school part of the sermon this morning. The seminar part is the next few points because contentment is something that we have to learn and it's, it's very important for our lives. Contentment is realizing that God will always be our provider. He will always be our provider. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, 15. Take care and be on guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, what does he do? Why is he doing this? He's making plans because he has a, a thought in his head of what he thinks contentment in life really is. But it's not what he thinks that it is. Verse 19, he says, And I will say to my soul, soul, self, I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and be merry. Just live life however I want to live it because I'll have an abundance. And, and notice he thinks that this is the purpose for his life. Now I got to say, I believe that this is what many people think is the purpose for their life. This actually has become the American dream so that I can just eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of my days and not have to do anything. My purpose is not for the Lord. It's just to be on vacation all the time. Now let's see, in verse 20, God said to him, Fool! Fool! Powerful word. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? Verse 21 says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, you weren't made for you. You were made for God. Why don't you have this or that? You know, I will recognize that I'm far from perfect. And, and I know that, but in life, there's been many times where people have come up to me and said, how come you don't do this or that? Because I know that not only does God have desires, his word tells me what those are, but I'm supposed to treasure those desires. And I love that. These principles are more important than what everything else is doing. I'm, I'm supposed to be in line and loving the things that God loves. I've been asked before, well, pastor, how come you don't drink alcohol? Well, you've heard me speak on alcohol before, and I went, I've gone through all the things in Scripture that talk about um, its ills. I've talked about the fact that it's called good in the Bible, where it says when you've spent everything on everything else, buy yourself some wine and drink it and, and be merry. And I've pointed out the other parts of Scripture that talk about it in, in Christendom. And today, in the world today, we have these ideas about alcohol that, you know, as long as I don't get drunk, I can drink. For me, I don't know where that line is. 
I, I just would rather have not have it. I, I've never had it in my life. I've never tasted it. Uh, honestly, I've, I was tricked into drinking some uh, peppermint schnapps one time and spit it all over the table at my friend's house. <laughs> he had to, it was like fire in my mouth, right? It's like drinking gasoline. Why would anybody want this stuff? Um, th that's, this is a personal conviction that I have. This is a personal um, decision that I've made. It's never been in my home. It was never in my parents' home. It's not something I desire. It's not something I want. That being said, I understand that there are Christians who drink alcohol. They have their anniversary and they have a glass of wine. And I'm not saying that's sin or anything like that. But what I'm saying is for me in my house, that's just the standard. I don't drink alcohol. I've been asked by somebody, I said, oh, you know, we go clubbing, we go out, you know, and we go do this and that, and we, we you know, we just have a good time, we party and we dance and stuff, and, and I don't. I've been asked why, and I say, well, I don't think that that's a, an environment that's conducive for worshiping the Lord. I just don't do it. Um, there, there, there are others who, who have mentioned a, a lot of things, or why, why, why are you in church? Why do you go to church? How come you go to prayer meeting on Sunday nights? The Bible says, I believe that I, being among the family of God and in God's house chisels away the fat in my life and I want to be a lean spiritual machine. I want to be sold out for Jesus more than I am the things of this world. I have an appetite and I've learned that the appetite for the things of God that I believe are in standards in God's word for everything else everybody says in society. When I look at the word of God and I kneel in prayer every day and the Holy Spirit touches my heart and reveals, I believe that I am becoming more like Jesus and I know others are as well. I am far from perfect. I'm not trying to say I am the, I'm a saint and I'm going to at any moment be raptured and leave you all behind. You know, and we don't stand on the rooftops of our houses with our backpacks saying, I'm just waiting for you, Jesus, either, do we? We live in this world, but we're not of it. So I changed my appetite. The more I'm growing in the Lord, the more I enjoy time with my wife and my family. The older I'm getting in the Lord, the more I hate things that are violent. The more I hate the things that the world produces. I'm, I'm becoming more indifferent to the, to the world's music and I'm becoming more indifferent to uh, uh, things because it's all filled with, with uh, sex outside of marriage. I'm tired of, I'm tired of uh, it always preaching about violence. And, and it used to be back in my day, we would tease people about, you know, the hard rock, acid rock music that had back masking and tell you to, you know, subliminally play. I can't even understand anything backwards. I don't know why we ever thought that, you know. Uh, they played it backwards and the joke was you play country music backwards, you get your house back, your wife back, your pickup truck and the dog. Um, but, you know, I mean, but today you don't have to play the music backwards. I mean, it's just right out there. It's evident. It's prevalent in our culture. I don't like that. I'm counterculture. I, I, I'm not in, interested in being entertained. I, I don't care about that. The things of God are becoming more and more. I haven't arrived, but the things of God are becoming more my appetite. Being in his house, being in his word, being with you as ornery as you are and as wonderful as I am, right? When we begin to change our appetites, it changes our attitudes, it changes our wants, it changes our desires, it changes the way we work, it changes the people that we have in fellowship with, it changes the environments that we want to be in. We want to be with God's people, we want to be in God's house, we want to be with our family, we want to be with the things that God established in his word as institutions for us to love and appreciate. Why? Because God begins to work in us and we begin to love the things of God more than the things of the world. I got to ask you some questions in this quiz as we get started. I'm just getting started. Hang on. According to my clock, I got a whole 40 minutes left. So 
If you get uncomfortable, you know, just stand up for a while. If you stand up, that's okay. Standing up is fine. If you leave the room, you're sinner going to hell. So, um, <laughs> I jest, of course. I mean, pastor told me if I left the room, I was going to hell, so whatever. Uh, are you content? In what ways do you enjoy the presence of the Lord? How much time do you spend enjoying your family, God's institution, the family, marriage, his institution? Are you making practical use of the possessions you have entrusted to you? Have you set your affections on getting things that you think will make your life happier? Do you grieve or become bitter when your possessions are damaged or stolen? When damage comes to your life, possessions, or family, do you have the response of Job? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you rejoice in the wealth that money can't buy, such as health, freedom, a good name, a clear conscience, and salvation more than temporary things? Do you believe that God has given you all that you need? Whew. I think we're going to hear a sermon today. The definition of contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything I need for my present and future happiness. Contentment truly comes when we realize that God is everything that we need and that he will never leave us, like he says in Hebrews. He supplies all our spiritual and physical needs. Going back to Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Secondly, contentment is contrary to human need. It has to be learned. Boys, when, when they were younger, one of my boys, the redheaded one, his initials is Andrew, we were in a, my, he was little, and we were in the office in, uh, in, at home, and I was in there preparing or praying. He used to come up, get up early and kneel with me. And um, he said, and at one point or another, all my boys have said this. He said, Dad, can't say it now. When I grow up, I think he's forgotten that. <laughs> I'm teasing him now. What a humbling statement. And I'm so glad that the eyes of children are so merciful and graceful and not seeing all the things that are really going on. But kids learn to love what we love as parents. They also have desires that will come on their own. And as parents, we, we have the job of steering those desires. It's a complicated balance. Too much correction too soon leads to rebellion. Too little too late leads to rebellion. And every child is different. So we try to use everything that we know how to use. And it's so funny. We, we go into life, they, oh, wife, children, pick a fence. But we don't realize that there's so much instruction about parenting and life and scripture. And it really is all a mirror of God the Father to us, his children. 
we steer that part of their life and the things that are unhealthy for them to love as parents, we replace with good things for them to love. Parenting 101, right? If they love something unhealthy, we're going to take it away from them. We're going to try to direct them in something else. And they're going to scream and they're going to squall and they're going to yell and they're going to all this stuff. But we as parents are going to discipline and love and correct and we're going to give them something they're going to love. If you're crying out to God for help, if you're praying, if you talk about the Bible, if you watch things that nurture character, they will have a desire for those things. You'll walk down the hall of your house and in their rooms, you will hear them crying out to God on their faces, worshiping the Lord when they need his strength. This takes being deliberate about nurturing their content and nurturing their contentment. When Jesus is important to you, he will be significant to them. And although we, they may run, they may scream, they may do all of these things, they will never forget their way home. That's why the promises in scripture, if you train a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart. That means you're living it out loud. Many people say, oh, I, I've been serving, I've been a Christian all my life. But yeah, have you been serving the Lord all of your life? A lot of people, we say that we're Christians, but living for Jesus should look like it does at church at home, right? Yeah. Wait a minute, uh, wait, it's quiet. <laughs> As a kid, I was in church all the time. You may not, the millennials and the late Gen Xers might not understand this, but the school used to ask the church when they could have their practices. The school used to ask them, what nights they couldn't because they had youth group or prayer meeting or they had church or they had something going on. Because why? Because in, especially in the Midwest, not in, not in the left and right coast that we have this issue, but there was a value in the house of God. There was a value in being around God's people because being in God's house was very important. There was community there. We were encouraged to live for the Lord and lay down the things of the world. We were encouraged to be content with the things of God. We were, we were being challenged and chiseled. We were, we were being preached at and we were being preached at hard remember hellfire and brimstone red-faced preachers kind of like this one and they were yelling at us they were baptizing the front two rows in their spittle it's just the way that it was now growing up that way is very very counterculture to the world i say be counterculture what a mess to be counterculture we think that if we have just the right environment, if we have all the right stuff, yet Adam and Eve had all the perfect environment. They were, they were still not content with it. Think about their environment. They had everything that God had promised to give them, a perfect marriage, a perfect garden. They had daily fellowship with God himself. And somehow they believed that God had not provided everything that they needed for their present and future happiness. With a spirit of ingratitude, friends, for what we have, we reject the things that God has given us. Thirdly, contentment requires distinguishing between needs and wants. 1 Timothy 6.10 has a couple of powerful words. For the love, that word love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, craving that word desire, through this desire, this craving for more of that stuff that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I told you, and I've confessed over the last few weeks, that this is one of the things that I have continually struggled with throughout my uh, earlier adult life and even later. 
Because I saw in the ministry that the different things that I, I was doing or whatever, my dad was always an encouragement. He died 16 years ago, and it, it took, it's been taking a long time to, to get this idea worked out of me that I would look at others and what they had in their life and their, their careers and their retirement plans and all this stuff, and I aspire to that. And, 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 and I realized that Jesus slept on a rock. He didn't have any place to lay his head. And I'm, I'm going, Lord, help me to be content with what you've given but covetousness begins with discontentment or misdirected desires and being unsatisfied with what we have. Uh, discontentment begins through desiring self-sufficiency rather than God's sufficiency. Remember the one on, on giving and, and how that we, we give to God. We're really saying to God, I don't trust you because I'm unwilling to give. Adam and Eve had everything they needed. And in the real life, the enemy was, God's keeping you something from you. He's hiding something from you. He knows when you eat, you're going to be as gods. Why? It led to their discontentment. When either person in marriage becomes self-sufficient, the love is damaged. Why? Because God says one plus one equals one. Because joy and grace come from giving and receiving that mutual relationship. And when one says, I want more or I desire, I'm going to, you're not enough, other one. And the two ones become two. I want to do this on my own. Matthew 13, 22, for what was sown, remember the seed among thorns? This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it. Choke the word, choke the, the life-giving word and make it unfruitful. Fourthly, covetous breeds idolatry. When we desire what God is not... Uh, given, but, uh, but what he has given to others. We're guilty of coveting. Exodus 28, 17, uh, you shall not covet, right? When we expect from possessions and people the things that only God can, can, can give, we turn to idols, becoming guilty of idolatry. Fifth, contentment begins with understanding our purpose. What is your purpose? Do you know? Why are you here? Why are you on the planet? Do you know Why? What should your purpose be? Purpose comes from gaining a genuine vision for life. And, and, and that gives us hope, right? It gives us strength. It gives us courage to go on. And many people in life have no idea why they're here. And we're constantly wandering around, grabbing for the next thing, only to be never satisfied. People without a vision are not content. Remember, Proverbs 3.19 tells us that people without a vision perish, that, that, that there is no revelation. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. In other words, they do whatever seems right to them because they don't have any clarity for their life. Vision and revelation, then, they're very important, right? Our purpose in life is very important. I mean, if where there's no vision and people perish, and they perish because of hopelessness when there's no vision, what is revelation then? Why is it so important? There's some powerful root words here in the meaning of this scripture, but let's just summarize it with the NLT. Look at what the NLT says very powerfully. Proverbs 3, 19. When people do not accept divine guidance. I love the substitution there that the NLT makes because that's really what we're talking about. When people reject divine guidance. In, in other words, why not live this? Why, why do we accept a version of Christianity that's real comfortable for us? Come on now. Why, why is it so simple to, to, not, to not say, okay, God says this in his word. And I'm, I'm constantly being challenged by this thing. I've been a Christian since I was a child. 
I've been in full-time ministry for more than 30 years. I, I am not somebody who's just new at this game here, and I'm still learning every day. So then where do we find divine guidance? Hmm, I wonder. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. In other words, I want to know him more than anything. Our purpose in life is to have fellowship with God, intimate fellowship. This is a revelation for some of us. This is revival for the church. This is where the rubber meets the road. Purpose is very important, so much so I want to talk about three reasons for purpose. The secret of purpose is enjoying the presence of the Lord. This is true contentment. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This morning I was in the sanctuary here early and one of the songs I was playing on my phone came through the sound system and it was, it was a song that was very familiar to me and the words just hit me just right and I, I felt the presence of God in this place and I began to cry and those things began to work out in me. Now I, I have come to know the Lord and because they did that and that release was there, there was joy. There was joy in number one, my, my creator's talking to me. This is the place where God wants to bring us. I haven't arrived. I'm trying to say that over and over again. But to bring us to the place where our contentment is in the presence of God. Do you know what that looks like? Are you there often? Do you hang out there? Or do you hang out with life's issues and woes and stuff? Or do you hang out there? Do you have time there we have this advantage. How do we do this? How do we enjoy the presence of the Lord? Well, I have three things that I think are brilliantly outlined. Of course, I'm not brilliant, so foolishness of preaching, right? God chose fools, so here I am. Number one, exchange your stuff for more of Christ. Jesus is all we need, but we will not know it until he is all we have. Paul understood this by exchanging things for more of Christ, Philippians 3.8. What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And friends, this is where we are. We come to the place where maybe we accept Christ Jesus as Savior. Secondly, we move into that second part where we're willing to wash some of the things off of our life. But then we just want to skip right from there to the presence of God. But that's not the way the temple court was laid out. First, they came in. First, before they could do anything, they washed. Then secondly, then the sacrifice was offered. And then there was an anointing, right? And we have all of this order of stuff before we can get into that place of genuine sacrifice and before we can get into that place of genuine sacrifice we often bypass something that's called being filled with the Holy Spirit we come to a certain place and we say God you're enough because my 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 very conservative mind or my very uh, conservative theological mind says this is all there is it's Bible lessons and stories and and this and that but God the Bible and his scripture and his word is an introduction to the living risen his uh, Savior who loves us who has all power and authority and dominion over everything creator of all do you know that God is he at the top of your list, getting to know him personally and intimately? We've got a lot of stuff, friends. If we're going to exchange our stuff for more of Christ, we have so many things. We have useless junk in our garages and $40,000 vehicles on the driveway. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, am I the only one? I mean, wow, I don't have a $40,000 car, but I do have some useless junk in my garage. We've got lots of stuff. Remember Jim Elliott's powerful statement, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he could never lose. In other words, I am willing to surrender everything I have in order that I might know Christ. How do I do that? I come to the Lord and say, God, this all belongs to you. I will do with it whatever you lead me to do with it. Consider this. God gives us things in life to enjoy. No problem. I enjoy my home. I enjoy going camping with my family. I enjoy pizza every once in a while. Getting older doesn't agree with me so well these days. I really love Thanksgiving dinner. I love good, you know, stuffing and gravy and turkey and all that stuff that puts you to sleep, all those carbs. These are all the things that God has given me to enjoy. I, I like them. But the thing of it is, I can't take them to heaven with me. So the real question is, because of that, everything we work so hard to get, although it's fun and it's great, they are not eternal. Our cell phones are not eternal. We can't take them to heaven. Do we enjoy God more than we enjoy our cell phone? This is a real question for some of us. Do I enjoy God more than I enjoy my um, Netflix subscription? I mean, these are all things, right? I'm not saying they're necessarily bad or inherently in, in some of them, but it's like, man, do I enjoy God more? I trust God to meet our needs and puts it, uh, all those things in place. He is the one that does this. Do we enjoy God's word? And, and to know God, that word in there, do you, to know Christ, that's a big word, to know. To, do you know God? Do you spend time with people that you enjoy? You learn what they like and they just, when you get to know somebody, this is what you do, right? You learn the person. You get to know what they like, what they dislike. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy the things that he says in his word? Do you eat them up? Are you happy to hear them? Do you enjoy being around other believers and hearing about God and what he is doing in their lives? Do you enjoy being in God's house? That's little big questions. These are things that God enjoys. These are things that God likes. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. That's a lot of riches. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Amen. So number one, we exchange our stuff for more of Christ. In other words, I'm going to make Christ more of a priority with my time, money, and affection than I am other things. Number two, recognize God's desire for us. For the unbeliever, God wants to know them. He wants to know you. If you're far from God, you, I want you to know that God wants to know you to know him. He already knows who you are. I know this is his desire. His word tells me that it's his desire. He's not desiring that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He, he is desiring to know every person who is far from him and doesn't even want to know him. Even though you are far from God, he died for you. If you're far from God, he loves you just the way you are, even though you're cantankerous, ornery, ugly, dirty. I don't really care. We're all that. We're all a big mess and God loves us no matter who we are. He wants to speak with you, to bless you, to restore you, to heal you. He waits patiently for you with arms open wide. If you're far from God, God loves you. For the believer, it's already there. He desires your fellowship. He says that your very body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants your body. He wants that body for his Holy Spirit to dwell in more than the things of this world. In return, God created us to have a daily need for him. He didn't create us to survive on one meal a month, but on daily food. He, he said, get, the, the prayer is, give us this day our daily bread, right? 
In Matthew 4, 4, he says that man will not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is such a God that he loves us so much and he wants us to know us so much. Zephaniah, he says, he is a God that sings over us. He's a God that sings over you. Thirdly and finally, how do we do this? We prioritize delight before desire. Psalm 37. Now, if you have never read Psalm 37, or it's been a while, it is, it is incredible. It's filled with phrases that we hear in church often because they're so powerful. But in verse number four, there is just this incredible equation of how we love the Lord, how we increase and how we overcome covetousness. Delight says yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the psalm is powerful. It was written by David as wisdom, I, I, they think, it, some theologians, as advice for his son Solomon. It was given in this regard. In this great advice, the whole, the whole chapter, God is saying all the way throughout the chapter that it will look like the wicked are going to prosper. And it says they're going to prosper. It's going to seem like that. The righteous are going to be under pressure. And you're going to feel like you're counterculture. You are. I am. God is saying you're going to have to trust me. The word wicked in the chapter is used 14 times in one chapter. We know this, right? If we're striving to live and to love the Lord and make him the priority, we, we fight this battle. God is saying, you're going to have to trust me. You will have to learn to be content. Otherwise, you'll be carried away with the world. Most people believe this verse says this. And hear me in this because this is what we believe in the church that this verse says. We believe it says that if you serve the Lord, he will give you what you want. That's not what it says. This week I did an experiment. I asked people, four people in our church, what they think this verse means. And I asked four people who are Christians that don't attend our church what this means. I got these two answers. All four of the people from Abundant Life said, it doesn't mean come to the Lord and he'll give you whatever you want. And I praise God for that because that's not what it means. Three of the four of the others from other churches said that that's what they believe that it means. This is in our culture. They're wonderful people. They love God. There's no problem there. And most people believe that if we serve the Lord, he'll give you what you want. But that's not what it means. We have, the entire, we have entire ministries in our day built upon the meaning of that very thing. If I know the Lord, he'll just give me what I want. Books have been written about to that extreme, and it's the wrong idea. Sermons have been crafted on that idea, but it's wrong. Follow me. He says here, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, when the priority of delighting in God is in your heart, God will give the agenda and desires to your heart, and that will be your new desire. God will give you the desires of your heart. 
God will give you the desires of your heart. God will give you, spiritually bestow, relay through his word, change your heart and mind, give you desires for your heart. Why is this important? Because just like children need to be directed and taught how to be content, a good parent will not only let them, not let them do whatever they want, but they will show them what is healthy. A child left to their own devices will grow up with appetites of selfishness, all the candy they want, all the not sharing, the arrogant, and the, and the, the not being humble and covetous and not content. They'll grow up unhealthy, fat, and mean. Why? Because the father knows what needs to be in the heart of the child more than the child. A covetous generation needs the guidance of the father. Why? Because our hearts want what they want. Because our wants have been left to our own desires. The lack of fulfillment, peace, and contentment are everywhere. We want bigger, we want better, but God says, I want to give you the desires of your heart. Coveting is exhausting. Coveting is exhausting. We work harder. We do this. We do that because we have to keep up with the Joneses or we want that. We want this or we want that. We got to have the Henley. And God says, delight in the Lord. And he will implant, he will give the desires that he wants to your heart and you'll have new desires. Praise God.